From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. My wife and I have been married 15 years, and during that time I've written stories about David Beckham, Draymond Green, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I don't think anyone in my family has ever been more excited about someone I've interviewed than Mo Willems. My wife's a children's librarian, and his picture books, including Knuffle Bunny, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus, and I Broke My Trunk, are collective family memories. Other books go to goodwill, but Willems is in that box filled with things in our house that no one's allowed to throw out. Here's Mo Willems talking about the challenges of writing picture books, which he knows his readers think are easy, and that's kind of the point. You don't, you don't want to be proud of how difficult it was. It's not, it shouldn't look like a technical achievement. You look at the Eiffel Tower, you say, like, mm, that was probably pretty difficult to build. Um, but a picture book, you should be so lost in the story that you don't think it was written. Willems dropped by the Big Event podcast studio in the Chronicle Archive on a Friday and spent some time looking at our historic photos before the podcast. He has a new alphabet book, A Busy Creature's Day Eating, coming out in March. I got an early look, and it's the first picture book I've read with a projectile vomiting scene. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Mo Willems, welcome to the big event. Welcome to San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's, uh, it's great to be in this basement. Yeah, you, so you've come to the basement. Um, what do you think? It's pretty cool. I like the idea of all these old pictures and all these old papers in particular. Yeah, it's great. It's, you know, I like digging through archives. I visit a lot of museums and libraries, particularly for looking at old cartoons and old illustrators and things like that. So it's cool. So I, I let you walk around a little bit ahead of time or right. encouraged you to, I think is probably the right uh, word. And you went right to the Brando file. <laughs> I think my wife has something for Brando. I, oh, okay. I I actually most enjoy just picking out a random file and seeing how alphabetically you go from, you know, somebody who looks like a gangster to a musician to a model to, you know, something from a long time ago or not. I think just pulling things out randomly is more fun. I saw a little spark when you were kind of around all this content. Mm. Um, were, were libraries always a happy place for you? Uh, you know, libraries I came to in various ways. I think libraries were more just safe, the, certainly the school library. You know, when I was a little kid, I was not a particularly popular kid, so lunch in the library was a, a nice, fun, safe place to be, sure. Yeah. I think I need to identify my biases here, and I am, <laughs> okay. I'm a very big, big fan of your books. Um, they were, I, I, I remember Knuffle Bunny was the first one I read, and then um, uh, Pigeon Drives the Bus is probably the second one. My, don't let the pigeon drive the bus, got to get that right. My children were young, and I remember I was reading books, and I was falling asleep and reading them the same way every time. And what I liked about your books is it's kind of impossible to do that. You almost have to inhabit the book and become a part of the act. Yes. So I wanted to ask you, what was kind of the genesis in terms of, um, you know, 
developing your style as a as a children's book writer because I think it's a really unique style. Well, I I come from a tradition of sketch. So I come from writing sketch comedy just as a kid starting out, but also working at Sesame Street, which is essentially a sketch comedy show for kids. So a lot of my stuff is dialogue driven. I think the realization is that I made was that I am writing for illiterates. Um, so I can't control anything in television when I'm making an animated film. I can control how long it is, how loud it is, how much action there is, but I can't control my orchestra. But I do know that my orchestra, the readers, the parents, the teachers, the grandparents, if they're bored, they're going to read it bored. If they think it's a little bit funny or if they think it's crazy or if they have to be crazy, they will read it that way and it will become more fun. So it, it's a sense of trying to build a score for your orchestra so that they will perform it in a jazzy way. I, I also noticed um, Knuffle Bunny had a happy ending I, I, in my, sorry, spoiler alert. But a lot of your books don't. Um, there's a certain, almost an element of tragedy to it that reminds me a little bit of Charles Schultz. Right. And uh, you, you seem to want that, and, and that seems to be something that, that... I think it's a natural thing. I mean... Uh, uh, the, my biggest influence was reading Peanuts as a kid, and, and it's me, what made me want to be a cartoonist. It's what made me want to draw and be funny. And one of the great things about Charlie Brown was, no matter what, he had it worse than I did. Uh-huh. Um, and the worst possible thing you could ever do to Charlie Brown was tell him he was in a funny strip. If he knew that he was his adventures were being broadcast around the world every day, he would think this was some sort of cautionary tale, some sort of <laughs> depressing, horrible thing. But the idea that not only is it, you know, is he going through a hard time, but we're laughing at him um, seemed even, you know, more perverse and hilarious. And certainly the pigeon is inhabits that world. If the pigeon were ever to find out that people laughed while reading his books, he would be shocked. <laughs> And and he doesn't get to drive the bus. No, either. no. I mean, he will drive the bus when when Charlie Brown kicks the football, and when the r- little red haired girl when they right when they that. yeah <laughs> when, when they get when they start dating. Were you were you a fan of Schultz early on? Were you? Oh yes. Yeah. Oh absolutely. From from day one, when I was five, I sent him a letter saying, "Dear Mr. Schultz, can I have your job when you're dead?" <laughs> Please tell me he wrote back. Well, he didn't, and it's not his fault. After I, I waited for him to die for a very, very long time. And when he finally did, I, I remember saying to my father, remember that letter I wrote to Charles Schultz? He said, yeah, we probably should have sent it. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I'm um, sorry. But, but over the years, I had become uh, friends with Jeannie Schultz, uh, Sparky's widow. Yeah. And early in our relationship, she gave me one of Sparky's nibs, which is the little metal bit that you stick in the ink. And I got to draw one of my books using Sparky's nibs, and that was a a real highlight for me. She is delightful, by the way. Yes. I want to get her on a podcast. She is a trapeze. Yes. (laughs) She's does the trapeze and, and knows everyone. and, and uh, Remarkable, remarkable person and, and a real advocate for cartooning and for also for the for cartoonists who aren't seen as often. Yeah. Uh, she's, she's really great. You are in the Bay Area um, for Sketchfest. That's um, right. By the time people are listening to this, it'll be over. You've got an event on Sunday. It's sold out anyway. But, yes. Um, but Lucky you've come us. back year after year. Do you like the Bay Area and, and also Sketchfest? Is this something that you're 
excited about? Because you mentioned that you yes, you yes. Well, I, it's twofold. Um, my wife's family is from the East Bay, and we have friends in San Francisco. So I, you know, I love any excuse to come to San Francisco. We get to see family. We get to eat well. We get to see friends. Uh, but like I said, I can't. I, come from a tradition of sketch and in college I worked in sketch groups and some of the people in those sketch groups uh, folded out and created their own groups. One became the state and so I've got these friends that I used to do this stuff with and I don't do this stuff anymore. So the idea of performing my books as sketch with you know, David Wayne when we perform Sunday we will now have been performing together for 30 years and there will be other people in the cast who I've never met. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's exciting. It's fun. Um, it's always fun. And what's great for the comedians is they often don't see such irony-free audiences. <laughs> you know, these kids are jumping up and down on the seats, and they're really excited, and their parents are happy to be able to share something with them. And it's a, it's a very sort of just a fun day of uh, making jokes. Yeah. So your next book, A Busy Creature's Day Eating, yes, is that correct, in March? I read it, and it's an ABC book, and then it goes off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> right around F, I think, Yes, it goes off the rails. Well, so A Busy uh, Creature's Day Eating is an alphabet book, and there, you know, it's, it has to do with a law that was created in the Eisenhower administration that af- after writing books for 10 to 15 years, you have to do an <laughs> alphabet book. <laughs> So here's my alphabet book, and I felt one of the things that frustrated me about reading alphabet books or the prospect of making one is that they tend not to be narrative. They tend to be list books. So I wanted to create this narrative where the, the each letter in the alphabet builds to a crisis. Yeah. Um, and in this case, it's about this creature who eats everything, and around F, you discover actually eats everything, <laughs> um, and around... Q you discover gets queasy and I thought it'd be fun I don't know how many mainstream alphabet books have V for vomit V for vomit I was gonna say um, <laughs> I, I think not just that but it there's this element of sometimes you're breaking the fourth wall sometimes you're um, you know making something appear to be one way and then there's a shift do you think about how the the adult is reading the book and kind of getting them off of their game too. Oh, absolutely. Hopefully, you don't notice it. Yeah. Um, but there are there are many different ways to manipulate my orchestra. There's a rhythm to a book, and so if I've got a certain number of words on a page uh, over a certain number of pages, you start speaking in a rhythmic way. So then, if I break that by either having a lot of words or very few words, I can change the way that the uh, orchestra performs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole point of this is to be invisible. Uh, if somebody looks at a book of mine and says, oh, that took five minutes, that's victory. Yeah. I, you know, you, you never say about your favorite comedian, boy, he really makes comedy look hard. Yeah. Yeah, I, but it isn't. It, I'm sure it isn't easy. There's elements of pacing. You're, you're limited in your vocabulary. Absolutely. No, it's, it's excruciatingly difficult, but none of that can come on the page. You don't, you don't want to be proud of how difficult it was it's not it shouldn't look like a technical achievement you look at the eiffel tower you say like "Mm, that was probably pretty difficult to build um but a picture book you should be so lost in the story that you don't think it was written well i i have enjoyed your books um i brought a couple here that when i dug them up my children are 12 and 9 now um i 
immediately like knew the voices I used. I mean, there's like a whole sort of ceremony to it beyond just the words on the page. I think what you're actually getting at is your sort of nostalgic feeling about the book has to come partially from my work, but Mm -hmm. more from my intent of only creating 49% of the book. Try to leave enough space so that you have to fill in, in terms of the way you perform, in terms of the way you turn the page, your rhythm, your pacing, so it becomes your book. Mm -hmm. You're in on the joke, and your memory is you being with your kid, performing and laughing together. So uh, part of my job is to like not be in the room, to step away. Yeah. Um, and like I say, if you are noticing any craft 10 to 15 percent in on your way into the book, then then I'm not doing it right. I, I got one of your DVDs once and it was uh, Naked Mole Rat. And uh, and I actually found it a little disarming hearing someone else's voice doing right. it, because in my <laughs> head, I don't know that I even watched it more than once, because in my head, I had a whole different cadence and a, almost a whole different story. Right. And there's and and you're doing it right. I mean, that's the key that you really my first two reviews that I ever got for Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. One said, I love this book because it teaches kids never to give up, always to keep trying. And the other said, I love this book because it teaches kids to stop and to know when they shouldn't go any further. (laughs) And both of those reviews were right because the reviewers were bringing their experience and their philosophy into the book. I was just asking the question. I've read, and tell me if it's incorrect, that there was a little bit of a J.K. Rowling story with that book, that it was not immediately embraced no, I mean, um, it was not immediately published. Um, yeah. I I was very lucky with it. Uh, when it was released, people seemed to have enjoyed it, and uh, librarians embraced it. But it was rejected for many, many years by, you know, I don't want to exaggerate, so I'll cut the number in half, 12 billion <laughs> editors. And every editor, including the one who bought the book, said the same thing, which was, it's unusual. And it was the editor who thought that unusual was not a pejorative term that ended up buying it. I was very lucky. The The books did well enough, and people seemed to like them. I, uh, my first book, uh, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus, got a Caldecott Honor, which is an immense uh, award in our industry, and it uh, makes a lot of librarians and teachers know about the books. And then the next year, the Knuffle Bunny book got a Caldecott Honor as well. So I was able to stop doing television probably about four or five years into being published, which was much more remarkable than I had ever anticipated. Besides being unusual, what were people saying who didn't appreciate it? Well, I mean, I think that um, if you don't like it, you don't like it. If it doesn't speak to you, it doesn't speak to you. You know, the characters are very simple. If you say, well, you look at the pigeon, you say, I could draw that. Well, that's the intent. Uh, My characters are purposely designed so that a five-year-old can copy them and create their own narratives and go out and, much like I did with Charlie Brown and Snoopy, spin those characters off into new realities. Mm. If your desire for a picture book is to be something that is ornate, the pigeon is not ornate. Mm-hmm. I, I'll tell you, too, I noticed, it reminds me of uh, uh, Stefan Pastis, who's local here. Right. He'll bring in new characters periodically. I mean, he gener- he has a few that have carried through, but he likes having something fresh. I've noticed that with you as well. The pigeon had its run, and mm-hmm. then, I mean, I don't even know if you'd want to write 
more. It one of the great advantages of books is that you do get to decide uh, who to draw and when to draw those characters and why to draw those characters. You uh, are not stuck always with the same characters, or at least I've been lucky enough not to. The process is a, a difficult process, and it's a process of sort of letting things marinate, letting things grow, and at a certain point, something will speak to you and tell you, like, okay, now it's time for this type of story. Also, I'm asking questions, and so the questions that I'm asking change over time, and so the characters that I need to ask those questions change. You know, mm -hmm. Elephant and Piggy were really uh, asking questions about how do you maintain relationships, how do you maintain friendships, how do you maintain um, relationships with strangers, what is friendship, all of those things. After exploring my neuroses with these two characters <laughs> for 25 books, I felt like I need to ask different questions, and if I do, I need to ask them with different characters. Yeah. So you have some new characters coming up. Um, this won't be out till Tuesday. Our announcement's right. Monday. So can you tell me about your? So next I there is there is a series of early readers. Elephant and Piggy uh, books, uh, which we did twenty five of, are called easy readers, which mm -hmm. is also means that they're hard writers. It's very uh -huh. limited vocabulary, and I felt like that duo dynamic I had had a sense of. So I wanted to create something with a larger group dynamic. Very interested in the in fiction and nonfiction and how they match and things like that. So I have a series that's coming out called Unlimited Squirrels. And it is, a, and the first book is called I Lost My Tooth. And it is a group of unlimited squirrels that <laughs> when I was actually in production drawing them, I wish was perhaps a limited group of squirrels. <laughs> it's a lot of squirrels. And uh, it's sort of a, a larger format book. It's for maybe a little bit older kids than Elephant and Piggy. You have a big, silly story. There are, on the big emotional moments, there are emoticorns, which are the acorns that show you what the emotions mm -hmm. are. There are acorny jokes. There is nonfiction <laughs> that relates to the fiction. And it all is in this very squirrely world of these friendly but perhaps not very bright squirrels. Um, and it's been a project I've been working on for years and years and years and um, am only now able to talk about it because the first book is coming out in the fall. Where, where do these ideas come from? Do they, is, is there an answer they to don't that? Go, no, I used to say Belize yeah. <laughs> because they have to be believable. <laughs> Though I think people think that ideas are things. Yeah. I think and that you go out and you get like objects. Like, uh, and that's not what they are. They are... They are seeds that you grow and you have to go back and you have to water them and you have to wait. And some of them, they turn into weeds and some of them don't grow. And only every now and then will that seed, after a lot of attention, will that idea grow into a really beautiful tree that bears fruit that you can cut down and burn for profit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, meeting with children. I wanted you to ask you about that, too. I mean, mm -hmm. does that change for you? Does this ever get tiring? Is it? difficult i mean i'm sure you're signing for hundreds and hundreds of children I, at some events i know kids 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 are great um and i'm always fascinated to see how they think and and what jazzes them uh i i'm definitely on their side i take them seriously they're they're not dumber than we are they're just new they yeah. just got here <laughs> so they're much like the person who just shows up at the party they got to figure out where the chips are and you know what's in the fridge and things like that um i Love being able to interact with kids. I At this stage, sometimes the signings do get large, so I don't get to 
spend as much time with the kids as perhaps I would like to, but I'm always interested to see how they're going to take the moment of hearing a reading and hanging out and getting a book signed and turn that into creativity on their own. I really Mm -hmm. feel like my job is to be the spark to something and then to get out of the way. So I'm more interested in what happens when the kid goes home and starts drawing and creating stories. And maybe the parents start drawing for the first time in years because they say, oh, maybe I can make a story. And then they they communicate together. I'm more interested in that than in the photograph that I'm going to be taking with the family. Uh, I want to just create a spark and get out of the way. What kind of letters do you get? You you told me the one you sent. What what? Oh, I've well, I've told the story of sending the letter to Schultz. So I have had a couple kids ask for my job when I'm dead. (laughs) Um, I get great stuff. I mean, you get you get the whole gamut. And again, what's exciting is to see them take my characters and then start introducing their own characters into the stories and and really talk about what matters to them. Uh Um, I feel very strongly that. Drawing is a form of physicalized empathy. When you're drawing something, you draw it chronologically. Or, you know, when you're making a cartoon, this is the villain. Why is it the villain? Well, the villain, because it's got an evil cape or this. And as you're drawing and thinking about the character, you're empathizing with the character. You're building new props. You're building relationships. You're thinking of dialogue. Um, And I think that it's important, even if you're not going to make your living with it, uh, to physically empathize with something we mm. at our family we've got a giant roll of butcher block paper we put it on the dining room table every night and whether it's just us or we have guests we pull out crayons at the end of dinner and we just draw mm-hmm. and it can be abstractions it can be cartoons it could be realistic it could be still lives but you're sharing time you're talking about the drawings there's always something in that doodle that comes out that is unique that is something that perhaps you haven't realized you were thinking about. Um, And, you know, at a certain point, kids stop. No, they're not going to be a professional basketball player, but they don't stop playing basketball. They don't stop drawing. It's only cool if adults look. The parents forget that they are, in fact, cool. Their kids may be the only people who think they are cool in the world. Mm -hmm. You could take advantage of that. So if... Your kid comes up to you and says, hey, can we go do X, Y, Z? And you say, ah, not right now because I'm reading. That kid's going to realize that reading is cool. Or, ah, not right now. I'm just making some doodles. Then that's cool. If you tell a kid what to do and you don't do it, they know you're lying. Yeah. No, I, I, I remember a point with my kids where I started drawing little on little Post-its, um, little cartoons for their lunch. And, right. Um, and then that. They acted like they didn't like it, but then when I stopped doing it, they act me, wanted me to do it again. And then I dug out a children's book I wrote when I was 17 and acted kind of embarrassed, but then I could tell they enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed it. I got a few lightning round questions for you <laughs> okay. on the way out. They're, Let's see how I do. Yeah. Um, take you, a sip of water. Take a sip of water. Be, um, um, yeah. Prepped for this. First one, are you recognized more for your voice when you're recognized just out in public and someone says, hey, are you Mo Willems, for your voice or your look? I think I'm uh, more recognized. I don't think I'm recognized at all, really? which is great. I mean, that's that that's the dream. Um, I don't look like a pigeon. I'm not two-dimensional. <laughs> so um, I would have to say neither. Okay. All right. Um, not a good start. I got Sorry. A good, I got, Sorry. No, no. I got a good one coming up. Just asking about Schultz again. Um, do you have a 
cartoon, I mean, a comic that you remember specifically of his favorite, something that... Yes. Oh, absolutely. Linus is by himself, and he's screaming to an unknown adult. It says, I'm independent. Yeah. I can stand on my own. And then looks down and slowly counts. Two feet. (laughs) Lovely. Now I want to go to the museum again. Um, Something that you do when you just want to not be Mo Willems, the artist, do you, do you have a way that you escape that, that has nothing to do with drawing or what? I try to, I try to take time to feed myself. I mean, I feel like there is business Mm -hmm. and there is work and then there is feeding. And the feeding for me is, uh, usually museums. I, I love, high art. I love uh, modern art. I like contemporary art. And so getting to go to a museum and sort of get charged and inspired that way is something that I try to do as much as possible. And final question. Uh, you said East Bay. What are, what are some of your Bay Area things to do when you come here? Oh, um, I, uh, I, I enjoy going to museums. I enjoy eating Vietnamese food. I enjoy eating Korean food. We live in a little village in Massachusetts. There is not as much of that. Um, and, uh, enjoy hiking around as much as possible. Well, hopefully this week I'm, I'm going to go out with family and we'll take some big hikes. Nice. I appreciate you coming to the Chronicle Archive. Thank um, you. This thank has you. been one of the most fun basements I've been in, in a, in a, <laughs> In a long time. I can't wait to see what you wrote on our wall. (laughs) And uh, I'm looking forward to your next books coming up. Let's get the names again. Uh, Unlimited Squirrels is your series. It's being announced. Do we have a date on that? I lost my tooth, and it's coming out in the fall. Tracy, my editor, actually, is somewhere in the archives. Do you know what the release date of Unlimited Squirrels is? It's the beginning beginning of of October. October. And if you can't wait that long, A Busy Creature's Day Eating which I'm going to go ahead and recommend it for 47-year-olds. Look, my books are made for people who have not learned how to be embarrassed yet. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's uh, hopefully a lot of people listening right now. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. I appreciate it. Rock on. Be well. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guest, Mo Willems. If you're enjoying the big event, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. And subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Executive producer is Fernando Diaz, and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album, Community. San Francisco Chronicle podcasts are on iTunes and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com backslash podcasts with an S. <laughs>